indeed it is. And um, we're not going to be able to um, address everything that is in, in this text. But hopefully, by God's grace, we'll highlight a few important truths concerning our Savior, the nature of our salvation. And in doing so, perhaps God would be gracious and great and give us greater insight into who we are and what God has done in our lives. So without any further delay, let us pray and ask God's blessing upon us as we go into his word. Heavenly Father, indeed, there is a power in this world, power of opposition, power of rebellion, power of destruction that is in this world seeking to kill and to steal and to destroy. But we, Lord, are gathered here this morning because we understand that there is a greater power still the power of our God to break the chains of bondage, to break the power of sin, to crush the rebellion, and to bring about a glory and an honor and a praise, to bring about a reality where every creature in heaven, on earth, and and beneath the earth, will bow down and recognize that there is one Lord, there is one God, there is one God above the heavens has come to us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Come now by your Spirit. Open our hearts and minds afresh to realities of your kingdom and your power and your glory in this place, in this world, in our lives. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. No, without a doubt, the Bible is um, unapologetic in revealing to us the realities of, of Satan and demons. From Genesis to Revelation. The Bible reminds us again and again that Satan and his demons have a clear agenda. They are those spiritual entities that are in opposition to the plan and the person and the work of God. And yet despite the clear description that the Bible gives us of Satan and and his designs and his desires in the world and in the lives of those whom God has created. Oftentimes we misconstrue what the Bible says about Satan. Oftentimes we misunderstand what the Bible tells us about demons. And so this morning, as we seek to understand this text here in Mark chapter 5, as Jesus encounters this demon-possessed man living amongst the tombs, I thought it might be helpful for us just to rehearse some important truths concerning the nature of demons in general and Satan in particular, so that we get a better understanding of who Satan is, what Satan can do, what his demons 
are seeking to accomplish. I looked at um, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 this week, where Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan here is characterized as a roaring lion. A roaring lion. If you've ever been um, to the zoo on safari or, or anything or happened to find yourself uh, out in the presence of a lion <laughs> and you've heard a lion roar, you know what a loud and intimidating noise makes. I thought about that and I thought to myself, Satan is loud. That's what he is. He's loud. I thought that we would use that to kind of describe the works and the the characteristic that the Bible gives us of Satan. So we can say that Satan's power is loud. Loud. What do we mean by loud? Well, Satan's power is loud, and we'll use the acronym L-O-U-D-D. No, that's not a misspelling. We needed five points. Thank you, Ruth. The L stands for Satan's power is limited. His power is limited. You know, whatever power Satan has, and beloved, he does have power. His power is a limited power. Satan can only do so much. He is not a creator. He is not sovereign. He is not omnipotent. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. He is a creature. He is not God. And therefore... He does not control all things. His power is limited. But not only is it limited, the O stands for it's overestimated. Unfortunately, Satan gets blamed or credited for many things that are beyond him. I would like to refer to this as the Flip Wilson syndrome. People like to use the phrase, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. And under this misguided scenario, Satan gets blamed for everything when oftentimes it is the sinfulness of our own hearts that are being manifested in our lives and in the world. And we blame it on Satan. The problem with that is oftentimes when Satan is blamed for the sins of people's hearts, people are not brought to repentance for their sins. And then ultimately, their sins are what sent them to hell. Nobody gets sent to hell by Satan. Sin condemns human beings to hell. Satan gladly welcomes them there. So oftentimes, his power is not just limited. His power is overestimated, but... Not only is it overestimated, the you reminds us that Satan's power also is underestimated. It's underestimated. On the flip side, 
are those of us who tend to think nothing of Satan's power and the greatness of his power for temptation and persuasion and for influence. Was Kaiser Sose in the movie Usual Suspects who said that the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And indeed, some people are living under the misguided worldview that there is no such thing as Satan. There is no such thing as the demonic world. Or, or many of us kind of consign that thinking and that thought to the lower classes of Christians, the unenlightened, the unintellectual, the irrational Pentecostals and Charismatics. Us Reformed people are informed and educated and rational. Such things belong to the Middle Ages and Dante and such mythical things. And Satan laps that up, beloved. Not only is he limited, not only is he overestimated and underestimated, but the first D reminds us that Satan's power is derived. Though the devil does exist, beloved, his power is only what has been given to him. He has no authority in and of itself. His authority is only as so far as God has given him leave. The kingdom over which he rules and reigns is a kingdom that has been granted to him by God. And this is why Martin Luther could say that the devil is God's devil. That ultimately it is God who sovereignly dictates to Satan. Ultimately, he is an instrument of God. And as is everything and everyone, he is under the, the reign and authority of God. And whether it is kingdoms in high places or rulers in low places, the devil's influence is a power that is in accordance with the license that has been granted to him by the God of heaven. So his power is limited, his power is overestimated, his power is underestimated, his power is derived, and lastly, his power is destructive. Though his power is derived, beloved, do not be deceived into thinking that it is not a real power. It is a real power. It is a destructive power. Jesus himself reminded us in John chapter 10 that the enemy, Satan, comes to steal and to kill and to do what? Destroy. He wants nothing more than the destruction of God's influence in the world. He desires nothing more than the destruction of God's people. He wants the elimination and destruction of God's image in the world. Ultimately, if he's allowed to have his way, he would have the destruction of the world itself. Let's not be deceived this morning. 
Satan is powerful. Satan's power is loud. And his power is real. And his power is great. But let us always understand and see that wherever Satan's power is real, God's power is more real still. Wherever, wherever we see God, Satan's power is great, understand that God's power is greater still. This is what is vividly demonstrated for us in this text this morning. Matthew chapter 5. Let us go into the text and see. And though Satan's power is great, our Savior's power is greater still. Jesus and his disciples have just arrived on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And we saw this last week, did we not? When Jesus tells his disciples, let's go to the other side. And on their way, they run into this huge hurricane. And Jesus calms the storm, demonstrating awesome power of his nature. And so you see that the night has already been filled with Jesus' awesome power, inexplicable power to the disciples. And yet, they even saw more awesome power. They would arrive upon the shore. Surely, surely you can imagine that the conversation was still being, that still was had, even as they were arriving onto the shore. They're still talking about Jesus calming the storm. They're still talking. Can you believe what, what, what just happened? Did you see that? Still, they're still trying to figure out who is this that we've hooked ourselves up with? Then they arrive upon shore. You know, when, when Jesus has gotten into the boat and he tells them, says they're going to get away from the crowd and they're going to go to the other side. Imagine, why does Jesus get in the boat to go to the other side? Well, perhaps it's because to get away from the crowd. Yeah, perhaps. Perhaps he's tired and he wants to rest a little while and so he goes to sleep. Yeah, that's probably part of it. Perhaps also he wants to demonstrate to the disciples his power over nature and the elements. That's probably part of it. Perhaps he also wants to show them their lack of faith and convict them of that, their sin of unbelief. Perhaps that is part of it. But, beloved, when Jesus gets to the other side of the shore, we know now why Jesus tells them to get in the boat. He's got an appointment on the other side of Galilee. He's got an appointment with the forces of darkness. That's why they get in the boat. That's why they cross the Sea of Galilee. When they get to the sea, they get on the other side. The Bible says that there comes running to them a man 
who is demon-possessed. A man who has been living amongst the tombs. A man who is wretched. A man who is not only influenced, but he is controlled. He is possessed by demonic forces. The Bible tells us some very uniquely and important aspects and things about this man. First, it tells us that this demon-possessed man has an unclean spirit. He's unclean. Jesus has just entered into unclean territory. The man is unclean. And there are several levels to his uncleanness. There are several levels. The first level of uncleanness is that he's a Gentile. They've just, they've just left Jewish territory. They've entered into Gentile territory. This is where the population was predominantly Gentile. And so the Jews would have considered all the people over there unclean. He's an unclean man living amongst unclean people. But not only is he belongs to an unclean people, he's dwelling in an unclean place. For he's dwelling in the cemetery. He's dwelling amongst the tombs. He's dwelling in a place that the Jews would have been forbidden to be dwelling in. And in order to even go there, it required them to have to go through some ceremonial washings and cleansings to be amongst the dead. And here is this man. Not only is he living among an unclean people, he's dwelling in an unclean place. He's dwelling amongst the dead. Besides being among unclean people and dwelling in an unclean place, the Bible tells us that he is possessed by an unclean spirit. An unclean spirit. Literally an impure spirit. An unholy spirit. A profane spirit. Luke tells us in his account that this man was not only unclean and not only unholy and impure, but he was naked. He's unclean, beloved. And the unclean spirit within him is going to manifest that uncleanness to the nth degree. He's a wretched man. He's an unholy man. He's a perverse man. He's a dangerous man. Because he is a demonized man. He's possessed by these demonic forces. For the powers of darkness have not just influenced him, but they have taken control of his body and his mind. And you see this because he is destructive. Because that's what the enemy wants. The enemy wants to destroy things. And so the demon-possessed person is going to be seeking out to destroy things. He's seeking to destroy anything and everything that's around him. Powerful in his destruction. He's 
power seen that no one or no thing can control him. No chains can hold him. No fetters. No shackles can constrain him. No one had to, had, to, had, to, had the strength or the courage to contain him or subdue him. He is dangerous. He is vile. He is violent. He's destructive. But it's not just that he's destroying chains. He's destroying property. And that he would destroy anyone who would come near him. But the idea, beloved, is that because he is so possessed by the demons, that he is self-destructive. He is self-destructive. He is always, he is always, the Bible says, crying out and bruising himself with stones. There is a self-mutilation that is going on. And this is the evidence of demonic activity. For Satan wants nothing more than not only to destroy the world, he wants to destroy the image of God in the world. And so the idea is not just the possession and the influence of a body and a soul and a, and a mind, but ultimately it is the destruction of that mind. It is the destruction of that soul. It is the destruction of that body. And wherever and whenever we or anyone else engaged in self-destructive behavior, beloved. We are doing the will and the bidding of Satan himself. Whatever it is, it may not be full-blown demon possession, but to engage in addictive behaviors that, that rob us of our minds, that rob us of our bodies. There's nothing more than the influence of demonic forces in the world. Addictions, incessant promiscuity to the destruction of souls and minds and, and bodies. It's nothing more than doing the work And succumbing to the influence of the the demonic ones. Even suicide itself is ultimately brought upon people by the influence of the evil one to the destruction of the image of God in the This is not something, beloved, that belongs to mythical tales and and fairy tale books. This is something that we live with every day. The power and influence of Satan and his demons is all around us. Every day. The people that we care about and even in our own lives. There's nothing more. To take your mind away from the things of God and the peace that God has granted us in Christ and for you to begin to engage in behavior that is self-destructive. Even 
only results in the taking of your own life. This is this man out here amongst the tombs. He is unclean. He is demonized. And he is possessed. He is possessed, the Bible says, by a legion. A legion. A legion was a unit of Roman soldiers. Anywhere between two to 6,000 soldiers make up, made up a legion of soldiers. And when Jesus asked the demons the name, his name, he says, I am legion, for we are many. And the point here is not so much about how many demons is possessing this man. Clearly, it was quite a few. The point here is not to figure out whether or not it was 2,000 or 4,000 or or 6,000. The point here is to understand that this man is thoroughly possessed and that for some reason, Satan has determined that he is going to set up camp in this region. He has determined that this is going to be an outpost for him where he is going to launch his attack in this area of the world. And so it's not just one demon in that place. It's a whole army of demons in that place. This is going to be a stronghold of Satan as he demonstrates his power and authority in this region. And you notice what Jesus does. Jesus purposely goes there. Don't miss that, beloved. Did he not just tell us earlier in Mark chapter 3 and verse 7 that if... If you're going to go into the strong man's house, you're going to have to bind the strong man. Jesus tells his disciples, get in the boat. Let's go to the other side. There's a strong man's house I'm going to pillage. Don't miss that. Jesus knows exactly where he is going. Jesus knows exactly what he is up against. He comes into the strong man's lair. And the message is clear. Where the power of Satan is great and beloved in that region there in Decapolis. In garrison, Satan's power was great. Jesus reminds us that where Satan's power is great, the power of God is greater still. The scene is set. But let's not miss the point. The passage is not about the greatness of Satan, for indeed Satan's power is, is great, but the, power, but the passage is about the greatness of Christ. 
The passage here is it's not so much about the greatness of sin, but rather it is about the greatness of our Savior. It is not about demons, but ultimately it is about deliverance that comes only through the power that is Christ Jesus. It is the demonstration not of the sovereignty and superpower of Satan, but it is a demonstration of the sovereignty of Christ. And you see it all over the text. His power, his sovereign power, as the even Satan and his enemies understand that he is sovereign, the sovereign one who has created them. He is the sovereign one who controls their conduct. And he is the sovereign one who's going to bring an end to them at the cross. They are reminded of all that right when Jesus gets off the boat. You see that. Let's look at that and see. He's the one who has created them. He's the sovereign one who's created them. For whatever we can say about the demons, understand this. Whatever you say about demons and the devil, one thing you cannot say about demons and devils is that they are not, uh, you cannot say that they are agnostic. They are not atheists. That foolishness and folly belong to the human mind. Demons know the one true God. They know the triune God. They know God the Father. They know God the Son. They know God the Holy Spirit. They know what God has done. They know what God is able to do. They're not ignorant of who God is. And in that sense, as John MacArthur would say, the demons have a very orthodox theology. They know who is the God above the heavens. They know who is the God who reigns. They know where they come from. They know where they are going. They know that they are those who it says in Jude 6, are those who did not maintain their original state. They know that they are the ones who did not remain in their own domain. But they rebelled against God. They rebelled against his will. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them rebelled against God, and God cast them out of heaven, sealing their eternal destiny forever. They know that. We see they know that. Because whenever they are asked the question, uh, who is your daddy? They respond rightly. They know. They know. They know who created them. They know who Jesus is. Notice what they do as soon as they see Jesus. Notice what the demon does as soon as he sees Jesus. The Bible says he comes, he runs, and he bows down. He bows down. Literally, he prostrates himself. Puts himself in a position of obeisance. Here we see them recognizing that Jesus is the Lord of all. They know who the Lord is without question. Before he even utters a word, they see Jesus in his humanity. And they know 
And what do they do? They do then what they know they will ultimately do later. The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The enemy, the Satan and his demons know this is their eternal destiny. And they do it then with the understanding that they will ultimately, all together, with all creation, do it later. They know who Jesus is. He is the Lord, the Son of God, God, the Son. Notice what they call him. He calls Jesus the Son of the Most High God, the Son of the Most High God. While the disciples were still trying to debate who Jesus is, as soon as the demons see him, they call him the son of the most high God. They know, they know, they acknowledge him that he is the son of God manifested in the flesh. That he is a God over all gods. And he is the eternal son of God. Notice what they say. Son of the most high God. Understand that there is no God above God. That there is a God who is over all gods. And he is Jehovah. The one true God. And Jesus is the son of God. Manifested. Whether there be princes of darkness or princes of this world, here the Bible reminds us that there is one prince over them all. It is Jesus. Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. Isn't it interesting? And when he was born, the angel came to Mary. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 32, telling her what will happen to her. The angel said, he will be great, speaking of Jesus, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And who calls him that? The demons. The demons. Before anyone else calls him the Son of God, the demons do. Demons know who Jesus is. Disciples are still wondering. The question for us is, do we? Do you really know who he is? Notice what the demon does. He pleads for mercy. He pleads, he pleads with Christ. He says, I adjure you. Literally, he says, I want you to swear to God. Swear to God that you won't destroy us. Excuse me? Swear to God, Jesus, that you won't destroy us. This is so, this is so interesting. This is so interesting. Why does he make such a plea? 
Why does he ask? Why does he make such a request? And it's because, beloved, he knows that he has no power in the presence of Christ. He has no authority once true authority has set foot on the shore. Once Christ has entered into the strong man's house, the strong man is powerless. And all he can do is plead for mercy. All he can do is plead for mercy. He is impotent. And the reason he is impotent, because Jesus demonstrates to us that he is the only omnipotent one. Irony of ironies, is it not, that the demon who would not show mercy pleads to Christ for mercy. Can you imagine how many times the demon-possessed man might have pleaded for mercy? Can you imagine how many times the family of the demon-possessed man might have cried out for mercy? How many times in the torture, in the pain of the body, the man lost inside of that body pleaded, pleaded for relief. And the demons showed none, but piled on and heaped on torture upon torture, pain upon pain, agony upon agony, destruction upon destruction. And they would have the nerve in the presence of Christ to plead for mercy. It's ironic, is it not? And yet, still, it is glorious that even the demons know that Christ is ultimately in control. Because he is their sovereign. He's not only sovereign over where they come from, he's sovereign over what they're doing. He's sovereign over their conduct. There's nothing, there's nothing in the demonic realm that, 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 that happens in the demonic realm except that God, give them, that God gives them allowance to do it. For he not only created them, but he has set the boundaries of their habitation. And not only set the boundary of their habitation... But you remember when, the, when, when Satan himself comes before God at, uh, at the beginning of Job. And he desires, he desires to have Job. He desires to tempt Job. He desires to influence Job away from God. But he can't do that until God gives him leave to do it. Which is demonstrated for us here. Not only in Job, it's demonstrated for us here. For the demon begs. He begs Jesus not to send him away. Not to send him to the abyss. Not to send him to the place where some demons have already been sent. Where all demons ultimately will be sent. Not now. Not now, Christ. Don't do it now. The one whom no one could subdue, is subdued without chain, without shackle, without fetter, just the presence of the omnipotent one. 
He knows. He is at the mercy of Christ. And Christ controls where he came from. Christ controls where he is to go. And they beg and they plead Christ with Christ. Don't send us into the abyss. Send us into the pigs. Just send us into the pigs and let us have our way there. You know, verse 13 is very interesting. It says, Christ gave them permission. Christ gave them permission. The one who would not be controlled by anyone, Christ gives permission. By the word of Christ, out of the man they came. By the word of Christ, into the pigs they went. It was not by their own volition that they came out. It was not by their own volition that they went into the pigs. It was by the word of Christ. He gave them leave. He gave them permission. He commanded their conduct. Beloved, it is by the word of Christ that all things are created, the Bible tells us. In Hebrews chapter 1, Verse 3, it tells us that all things are sustained by the power of his word. It is the power of the word of Christ that is Satan's undoing. It's always the power of his word. And though this world was devil's fear, Luther reminds us, should threaten to undo us, we will not fear because God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word, that's what Luther said, one little word would fail him. And all Christ had to do was say, Jesus grants the demons a reprieve. That's all he does. He grants them a reprieve for a time because, lo, their doom is sure. It's not only just controls you know, them in creation, he controls them in their conduct, but ultimately their doom is ultimately sealed and sovereignly controlled at the cross. This is really the issue. This is really the issue. But an interesting thing is that after the demons leave and they are sent into the pigs, the herdsmen are outraged and they come and they find the pigs gone. But they also find the once demon-possessed man sitting clothed And in his right mind, sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. Sitting, sitting, no more chains, no more fetters, no more shackles, clothed, no longer naked, no longer vile, no longer perverse, no longer wretched or wicked. 
in his right mind. No more self-mutilation. No more fits of rage. No more self-destructive behavior. No more addiction. Everything that Satan sought to do to the man, Jesus came and undone. Everything that Satan would have to destroy that man, Jesus comes and he undoes. The curse that was upon the man, Jesus comes and he reverses it. comes to reverse the curse. And how how does he do this, beloved? Don't think for a moment. Don't think for a moment that it was by the demons going into the pigs that the man is saved. The man is not saved because the demons go into the pigs, beloved. The man is saved because Christ is going to the cross. Why are the demons afraid? The demons are afraid because they know why Christ has come. Wait a minute, Lord. Is it time already? Have you come already? Is it time for the great reckoning? The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, Christ came into the world to destroy the works of Satan. That's why he came, to destroy the works of Satan. In John chapter 12 and verse 31, Jesus himself, in speaking of his crucifixion, he said this, Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men unto me. Cast out because I'm going to be lifted up. He says, Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15 that it was at the cross that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. you understand something this morning? This passage here is not simply about the demon-possessed man. It's about you and me. It's not simply about the man who was there amongst the tombs possessed by demon, but it is about every human being that has come into this world that is born in the grips of Satan. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, not all men are demon-possessed, yet by nature all men are ruled by dark and sinister forces. You don't believe it? Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, gives us a clear description and delineation of everyone before they are in Christ. 
And notice what it says. You, me, the demon-possessed man, it doesn't matter. He says, we all dead in our trespassing. Dead, dead. You come into the world DOA, beloved. You come dead on arrival. And every human being apart from Christ is just like the demon-possessed man walking amongst dead people. We live amongst the tombs. Dead in our trespasses and sin. Subject and following the prince and the power of the air, namely Satan himself, following the ways and the will of Satan. Every human being comes into the world not only dead in trespasses and sin, but following after, chasing after, willingly doing the will of the enemy. Rebellion against God. Paul here isn't talking about the man in the tombs. He's talking about every human being who's coming to the world, dead, following after the prince and the power of the air, sons and daughters of disobedience, he says. Is that not what the man in the tombs was? He would not be told what to do. He would not be chained. He would not be subdued. He's going to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. Sounds like the man in the tombs. Yes, sounds like you and me too. Dead. Dead men walking. Following after the patterns and the power of the prince of the air. Sons and daughters of disobedience. Living. Living. Listen to what Paul says. Living in in the pursuit and passions of the flesh. Carrying out the desires and of the body and the mind. Self gratification. Self satisfying. Self Pleasing, self-destructive behavior. Sounds like the man in the tombs? Yes. Sounds like you and me? Yes. Then Paul says, by nature, children of wrath, under the curse, under the condemnation, under the wrath, rightly so. Sounds like the demon-possessed man. Yes. Sounds like you and me. It's not simply a message, beloved, about a maniacal, demonic man who was delivered. Beloved, this is a message about you and me. If you are sitting here this morning, clothed and in your right mind, it is because Christ has delivered you. If you are sitting here, clothed, clothed, not running around here, perverse and perverted. Not running around here, pursuing the lust and the passions of your own desires. Not living a life that is totally self-destructive. It is because Christ has come and delivered you. If you are in your right mind, and that is a mind. That is here with a mind to lift up hands and praise to Christ. 
If you have been given a mind to understand who Christ is and what Christ has done, if you have been given a mind of the necessity to gather with the saints of God, to come to the Lord's table and receive the encouragement for your soul and your body, you need to understand it is because Christ has delivered you. And he has clothed you and put you in your right mind. If you are no longer engaged in your self-destructive, self-mutilating, body-destroying, soul-crippling behavior, it is because Christ has delivered you. And you are not only clothed, beloved, and in your right mind, but he has renewed your mind. And he has clothed you in his own righteousness. So that it is not simply that the demon-possessed man was able to put on some clothes. It is that in eternity, the demon-possessed man will be clothed in Christ himself. Which is why Think about it long enough. This, the demon-possessed man might be the least sympathetic man, as vile and wicked and wretched as he was, might be the least sympathetic man in the whole New Testament. And yet, he also might be most, district, most descriptive of who we were. why the song says, my Jesus, I love thee. Can you hear him saying that? Sitting there, quiet, trying to figure out what has happened to me. And they say, we're gone. He said, we com- I'm coming. I'm coming. You can imagine him saying, my Jesus, I love thee. I know that thou art mine. And for thee, All the follies of sin I resign. Can you say that? Can you say that this morning? If he has delivered you, that's all you want to say. No more self-destructive behavior, Lord. No more the foolishness of sin. No more of the chains and the shackles. I'm free. Thank God I'm free. No longer bound. No more chains holding me. My soul is resting. It's such a blessing. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I'm free. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a great deliverance we have received. In Christ Jesus. Oh, we thank you for the power that not only delivers the demon possessed, but Lord, that delivers all those caught in the trap of sin. Sets us up by your grace, clothes us, 
in the righteousness of Christ renews our minds according to your grace and your mercy. We are new creatures and we want nothing more than to go with you, to follow you, and to resign all the folly of sin to your glory and praise. Father, if there's anyone here under the sound of my voice who doesn't know you, who hasn't come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who hasn't recognized Christ as Savior and Lord and come by faith to repentance, I pray now would be the time that they would embrace the Savior who is able to save them, to satisfy them, and to secure them for all eternity. Redeem them even now from the grips of Satan, even from the eternal condemnation of hell. We know, Lord, that you are able to do this. We pray that you would be willing. In Jesus' name, amen.